0: What's for podcast, Squire?
1: What's for podcast, Stitcher?
2: What's for podcast, Governor? Hello, hello.
3: What's for podcast, daughter?
1: Discord and rhyme. More music, more music, more music, more music. Buddy, Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song, including the ad breaks. Roll call, John McFerrin, Dan Watkins, Rich Bennell, Ben Marlin. Our host this week is Dan. What album do you have for us, Dan?
0: And while you're at it, give us your sales pitch on why you picked it. I, I don't have my elevator pitch ready, uh, uh, <laughs> but... I am bringing to you 1967's The Who Sell Out. I've been a casual fan of The Who since I was a kid. And with a lot of classic rock giants, radio overplay has kind of killed my desire to listen to a lot of their albums. And while I don't know if I'd call The Who Sell Out their best album, it's definitely my favorite album and the one that I listen to the most. Um, it's not been beaten to death by classic rock radio. And it's just a really, really fun album. It's silly and funny and the songs are also just really good. All right, so Dan, why don't you tell us about your personal history with The Who? Well, I definitely absorbed uh several of The Who's songs on classic rock radio just by being in the car with my parents and I probably didn't know it was actually by The Who when I heard the songs, but when I was about 9 or so, my mom bought The Who's greatest hits, which is the the one with the Union Jack shirt on the cover. And I distinctly remember hearing My Generation just being blown away by it.
4: People try to put us to Talking about my generation Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things they do look awful Talking oh. about my generation I, hope I die before I get old Talking about my generation Generation,
0: and, you know, it was heavy and it had a bass solo in it. You just, I'd never really heard that before as a kid listening to classic rock radio. So from there, I just kind of dove into my parents' Who vinyl records. And in particular, I was really drawn to Tommy. And in a memory I just recently dislodged, I remember watching an episode of Head of the Class, where Howard Hessman's character was talking about... Tommy is this big rock opera. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So that was kind of the one that I latched on to. And I really, really got into it. And I watched the movie and everything. Uh, but for some reason, I really didn't buy any Who albums on my own until college or so. And it turned out to be kind of a save the best for last situation. Because you
2: finally got It's Hard.
0: <laughs> 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 I've actually yet to buy that one. One day I will.
2: Oh, you're <laughs> in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I got Live at Leeds and The Who sell out pretty much back-to-back in college, and that's when I really realized, oh, The Who are great. Always liked them, always knew they were good, but those albums really kind of hammered at home. And while I don't find myself grabbing their albums off the shelf too much these days, again, just because of overexposure, uh, I still consider them one of the best big bands of the era. I mean, they had just four totally distinct personalities. And even when they are at their most sort of boisterous and ambitious, they're still funny. So yeah, I mean, the who they're great. You know, Everybody knows that. So I didn't know that once upon a time, um, the who were
1: another, one of those bands that I love now and that I initially thought I hated. Um, when I was in high school, I uh, got myself a copy of that same uh, Greatest Hits compilation, and I thought it was terrible. It's not a very good compilation. It's not a good <laughs> compilation, but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. You know, I, I knew some of their songs from from Classic Rock Radio, and I, I just didn't get them at all. Then my in my my freshman year of college, um, I, I was starting to go through a process of saying, okay, maybe some of my initial takes uh weren't great. I'm going to try and... And listen more to things that aren't the Moody Blues and Pink Floyd. Sheep. And I decided I would uh, go in a different direction. And I, and I said, you know, I'm going to go with a live album. So I I went down uh, to my local bookstore, got myself a copy of Live at Leeds. This was the uh, the first expanded one that uh, was a single disc, but about 70 minutes. And I loved it. I was like, oh, this is this is totally different from what I was expecting. This
4: this is terrific. I'm talking- I used to
1: Another compilation that was uh, that had come out more recently was My Generation: The Very Best of the Who, which basically has most of uh, Meaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy, and then uh, a good sampling of s- some tracks from their Arena Rock days. And I really, really love that one. And then I said, okay, well, this is this is a good start. And then I bought Tommy. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And I was like, okay, th- this is stupid. I just got to start buying as much stuff as I can. The Who Sell Out came into my collection uh, during spring break of my freshman year of college. I bought it at the same time that I bought Who Are You, which I also like a lot. Um, but I loved this one right away. And from that point onward, I realized, okay, the the Who are just going to be one of my favorite bands from here on out. And they are. And here we are. <laughs> ben, what about you? The Who was one of the earliest classic rock bands that I knew about, uh,
3: because you heard songs like My Generation on Oldies Radio. But also, one of the first CDs that my family ever had was Meaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy, which is just a, a classic Who compilation of, of their really catchy 60s hit singles. Uh, it doesn't even delve into their their later bigger 70s stuff. And I love that. There's just so many great songs on there, uh, many of which ended up um, being among my favorite songs as a kid. In particular, my whole family loved uh, John Entwistle's catchy joke tune, Boris the Spider. Spider. And then every spider after that that came to our house became Boris, even though thankfully they didn't all meet the same sticky end. <laughs> As I got older and became a proper teenage classic rock listening Rolling Stone reading drone, I of course became familiar with the band's huge bombastic 70s hits that you all have talked about, which are still all great and not just because Jan Wenner said so and no matter what the disreputable Rich Bennell might tell you later today. along the way the who became one of my favorite bands when i was 36 i embarked on a project of listening to every song The who recorded and writing about it for what became my first book which i creatively called listening to the who going through their catalog was a real joy because even when their songs aren't the best as happens across the career of any band the band is always trying to do something interesting not just composition wise but also each of the four members are doing something interesting for the length of each song. And even if you strip away that, you know, the left brain interesting aspect, they almost always deliver an affecting melody and a crashing, satisfying radio hook. So this is neither my first or my last shameless plug. My ebook is up on Amazon. Search Benjamin Marlin, listening to The Who. It's $2.99, marked down from ninety nine ninety nine, just for today.
2: And finally, Rich, what about you and the Who? I went through a big Who phase my senior year of high school. Uh, Specifically, I remember that I was on vacation with my parents in San Diego in the summer of 2000. uh, And they found out from the newspaper that the Who were in town that night. And so they decided on the spur of the moment to take me to go see them, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, And it was 2000, so John Entwistle was still alive then. So I got to actually see uh, three quarters of the classic Who lineup (laughs) performing just (laughs) basically a nonstop barrage of amazing music. And so I immediately went out and bought Tommy on that same trip. And I I remember listening to it on the plane ride home. It was pretty much exactly the ride of the plane ride home. It was very convenient. Uh, And I've been I've been into them ever since, even though it's kind of waxed and waned in terms of how how much I actively listen to them. In fact, I've kind of fallen off on listening to them over the years. And in the meantime, a bunch of their songs have achieved, you know, the same kind of. Obnoxious commercial ubiquity that happened to Queen's hits, sadly. Uh, so listening closely to The Who's albums for the last month or so, has it's been a chance to fall in love all over again for me, honestly, and remind myself just what a great band they were, stripped of all of the baggage. All right. So Dan,
1: why don't you tell us about The Who and how we ended up with their sellout.
4: I don't mind but The guys dancing with my girl that's fine.
0: I'm going to hazard a wild guess that most of our listeners have at least a passing familiarity with The Who, so I'm not going to get too bogged down in every little detail here. The origins of The Who began with The Detours, which was a band formed by Roger Daltrey in London in 1959. Roger invited bassist John Entwistle to join, who would soon convince him to also recruit Pete Townsend on guitar. In 1964, they changed their name to The Who and gave poor old drummer Doug Samson the the old Pete Best treatment, (laughs) to make room for Keith Moon. They geared their image toward the growing mod movement in London and developed a sound styled after the American R&B scene. During a live performance, Pete Townsend accidentally broke the headstock of his guitar on the club's low ceiling and, in a fit of frustration, smashed the rest of it on the stage. At a show the following week... Keith Moon kicked his drum set over, establishing themselves as the band that breaks things on stage and off stage, for that matter. Audiences began to show up to gigs to see them smash their gear, and were pleasantly surprised to see that they actually had a couple of decent songs. (laughs) The band hired Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp as their managers, who also got them their first single, "I Can't Explain." success of this also led to them releasing their first album, 1965's My Generation. The album featured nine Pete Townsend originals with a handful of James Brown and Bo Diddley covers. On their sophomore album, A Quick One, there were songwriting contributions from all members of the band. It also showed Pete Townsend's first experimentation with more ambitious song structures on the track A Quick One While He's Away, which is a nine-minute mini-opera with six movements. <laughs> album began under the working title Who's Lily, which was named after the preceding single Pictures of Lily. The band managers suggested the idea of structuring the album like a pirate radio broadcast, complete with station IDs and commercial jingles. So what is pirate radio exactly? In the 1960s, there really were no commercial radio stations in the UK, and the BBC had strict limits on how much pop music they'd allow in their format, because they saw it as kind of beneath the BBC. It's a play this kitty crap so as you might guess this left a huge demand for pop radio kind of similar to american am radio in the uk so the solution was to just simply set up ships in international waters off the coast of england to play whatever they wanted free of any licensing you know red tape and these stations played a large part in boosting the popularity of bands like the who The stations eventually became outlawed with the Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act, which went into effect at midnight on August 14th, 1967. The good news, though, was that by this point, the BBC decided it was time to finally restructure its format and establish separate radio stations to free up programming to give kids their damn pop music. (laughs) They even recruited a number of DJs from pirate stations, most famous being John Peel, who, you know, did okay later on. The Who's Still Out was released just four months after the pirate radio ban, which made it seem like a fitting tribute to an end of
2: an era. And there was a dramatic movie about this like just about 10 years ago or so, right? The Boat That Rocked? Yeah, or it's was called Pirate Radio
0: in the U.S.,
2: which I never saw. Yeah, and it features Philip Seymour Hoffman, so the, it must be at least a little bit worth seeing, but <laughs> I, I, I've heard mixed reviews of it. But if people want to know more about pirate radio, then uh, there's a whole movie about it.
0: Yeah, it's got a good cast, but I have not heard great things about it. So I've been reluctant.
2: Mm-hmm. Our own Amanda Rogers says that it's okay. Well, hey, with that <laughs> endorsement. <hey. laughs>
0: One thing that is worth pointing out with this album is that there are at least three unique mixes. There's the original stereo, the original mono, and a 1995 remix. The version I first heard was the remix, and it's still my favorite. Um, in my opinion, it kind of cleans up the stereo mix a little bit. and makes it a little smoother in a way that doesn't really compromise the original sound. All these mixes are widely available. They're all on Spotify, so I recommend giving them all a listen just to hear how they're different. Uh, We'll be clipping from the original stereo mix just because it's kind of become, I think, the standard again with the reissues of the original stereo and mono mixes. And we'll point out some differences along the way, maybe.
2: Yeah, and there was a big uh, Who Sell Out box set that came out this year for the 50th anniversary. And Spotify has all of that with all of the different like mono and stereo versions on there. If people want to compare all of the little like changes across each version. So before we get to the Who Sell
1: Out, it's time for Discord and Rhyme to sell out. (laughs) If you've been enjoying Discord and Rhyme and would like to support the ongoing production of our podcast, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod, where you can sign up for a monthly donation with perks such as access to our special feed of bonus episodes. And we have some new donors this week. Andrew. Ken. Jacob.
2: Mark. Steven. And Matt. Wow, six people. We are selling out. (laughs) Thanks,
1: everyone. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks, all of you. And as always, thank you to everyone who's been supporting us all along the way. The show notes for this episode and our full episode archive are available on our website, discordpod.com. And you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere where podcasts can be found. If you have any questions or feedback about Discord and Rhyme or want to call us sellouts, we're on Twitter at discordpod. And you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would help us out a lot if you left us a rating or review. And if you're not on Apple, spread the word any way you can. We're a small, independent podcast broadcasting from a boat docked in international waters. And word of mouth is a critical way for us to get new listeners.
2: And just another plug for Ben's book. If you enjoy Ben's opinions about The Who sell out so much that you come away from this episode thinking, I wonder what this guy thinks of literally every single other Who song. Well, (laughs) good news. Ben wrote an excellent ebook called Listening to The Who, Album by Album, Song by Song. It's available on Amazon and we'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks, Rich. Sure. And with that, we will move into track one.
0: This is called Armonia, City in the Sky. So track one actually opens with a station ID. Monday.
4: Tuesday. Wednesday.
0: Which I'm not sure if it was recorded for this album, if it was just stolen. They
3: stole a bunch.
0: They recorded
3: some original commercials, but they also stole a lot of the uh, radio London tags, kind of shamelessly. Hey, it's a tribute. <laughs> it's sampling.
2: One thing I always wonder about this one is, like, did it originally play like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all in a row after each other, or were those the huh. individual station IDs for each day of the week?
0: Oh, that's a good question. My guess is the latter.
2: But I don't know for sure. I like them all lined up like that. And if if anybody actually had the chance to listen to Pirate Radio back in the day and has any answers for us, but please write into DiscordPod at gmail.com. And song.
4: <laughs> if you're a trapper, Oh,
0: that drumming who was that guy some guy that was doug something i think
3: (laughs) didn't you indicate that they slit his throat
0: (laughs) no he went to a farm upstate where all the other failed drummers go (laughs) <laughs> uh armonia city in the sky has always felt like a kind of a misdirect as an opening track it's a big colorful psychedelic rocker complete with trippy tape effects backwards guitar and phased vocals which is a sound the who didn't really do very much at all yeah the who themselves were not fans of hippie culture uh, they weren't really an acid band they were an amphetamine an- band And a lot of people have taken this song to be a parody of Psychedelia, and I can buy that. The lyrics are basically sort of psych by numbers, and even have that corny freak out, freak out chant at the end that sounds like it's intentionally silly. However, the band was really trying to break in the U.S., and with Jimi Hendrix as a label mate, I don't think it's impossible that this might have been a half-serious swing at it as well. And early copies of the album came with a trippy looking poster with this big butterfly on it. So it's possible they were taking a stab at psychedelia just in case. Either way, it's an interesting introduction to an album full of songs about baked beans and deodorant. (laughs) And regardless of the intentions, the song sounds great. Just as this big psychedelic light show, it's really well-produced, and it's just jam-packed with a lot of cool little tricks, and Roger Daltrey is just nailing some impossibly high notes. The song was actually written by Speedy Keen, who was Pete's driver at the time, who would go on to form the band Thunderclap Newman of Something in the Air fame. And if you're playing at home, you might remember from our uh, Yellow Tango episode that Moby Octopad actually samples the brass swell from this song.
2: in conversation with each other they are yeah and speedy king also sings on this song right i think that's him doing the harmony yeah and he does the
0: freak out freak out thing but i can't quite pick his voice out of rogers Mm -hmm. for most
2: of it i think something in the air is a great song but it's hard for me to dissociate it with uh with like song that i turn off tom petty's greatest hits before (laughs) i get to
0: (laughs) that bad wow it's just unnecessary
1: so as for me i i adore this one um and i i found this shocking like legitimately shocking the first time I listened to it because again, by the time I got to this album, I, I, I knew their hits pretty well. I had listened to Tommy and Quadrophenia, and I knew all of Who's Next really well. And this just broke up a, open a whole new world of what the Who were capable of, even though they never again never did anything like this again. But the thing is, like, for for being a psychedelic rocker, like, if you just pay attention to the instrumental parts chugging underneath, like they're still the same core that they always were
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, at whistle and, and moon are just, just chugging away and the guitars are still grounded in this really, really firm, gritty rhythm track. It's just that there's these, there's these effects placed on top of it as, as kind of a garnish, but like the core of the band is still the same and seeing how they're able to, uh, Find a new direction, but still maintain the core identity was really, really fascinating to me right away. It's like, I mean, the, the only reason I can see for this one not being considered like a stone cold classic is just simply the fact that it doesn't really sound like the who in in the most generic sense. But like, that's the only excuse I can see for it. I absolutely adore this one.
2: Yeah, I, I can't think of another song of theirs that I would classify as psychedelia, necessarily. Um, I, I guess maybe I, c- I can see for miles, which we're going to talk about uh, in a few songs. But uh, we, we talked just a couple episodes ago about how like the Rolling Stones are one of the most famous yeah. bands ever, but there are just a lot of sides to them that you don't really get uh, if you just stick to kind of the one-dimensional picture you get from the, from the radio. And, and the Who are like that for me, too, with, with songs like this that just kind of come out of nowhere and sound like a completely different band from for for just one song and then Pete Townsend goes off into another like songwriting corner but, but yeah the song is such a fun soundscape like to me it, it, the sounds that were sampled in Moby Octopad it, it, they feel to me like you're in like the cloud city from the Empire Strikes back and those little yeah. like orange pod vehicles are speeding by <laughs> uh, with, with that Doppler effect going on. it's really cool
0: and I think that's John at whistle reversed oh okay yeah. that's what they're doing there because he plays all the horns on this album.
1: Ben, what do you think of it?
3: Yeah, I like what you all have to say. And I love this one, John. I mean, I think it might not have been a hit because it didn't sound like the Who. I would also say that as much as it's an amazing record, it's an OK song. It's fun. Sure. It's catchy, but it's not a, a, a genius Pete Townsend song. So that might be a reason it didn't. It wasn't like all over the radio. That's fair. Um, yeah. And as you guys have talked about, it's it's not like anything the Who ever did. And that's going to be a theme on this whole album. This is, to me, it's Sgt. Pepper's Psychedelia. It's a little softer and trippier than an angry song like I Can See From Miles, which Rich talked about. This is almost like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but with electric guitars and harder drum beats. Um, It's happy. So yeah, it's not the most brilliant composition. Uh, Speedy Keen got his foot in the door with the Who, but then it closed and broke his toe. but it's a fun-ass start to a fun-ass record
1: yeah
2: oh and there's an excellent cover of the song by sugar who we talked about back in january Uh, they would open their shows with this song on their first tour oh Uh, and it's and it's a really really appropriate song for like sugar's huge power trio sound
3: The fact that they picked out this song, that's so great.
2: Well, The Who themselves, I think they almost never played Armandia City and the Sky live, right? They did not. I think most of these songs are probably
1: neglected live. All right, let's move on to the next track, which is going to be the first of this album's many little detours. This is Heinz Baked Beans. Well,
2: first we got a jingle from Wonderful Radio London.
4: Wonderful Radio London.
2: No coder, <laughs> and that one's stolen too. And then we get to Heinz baked beans. One, two,
4: three, four.
2: This is
3: just the greatest.
4: What's for tea, ma'am?
5: What's for tea, darling? Darling, I said, what's the tea? What's the tea, daughter?
0: So here we get our first actual commercial jingle, and John Whistle pinned ad spot for everybody's favorite snack. Of course, the product is famously represented on the front cover with a picture of Roger Daltrey soaking in a tub of beans. And
2: getting pneumonia.
0: Yeah, he got pneumonia. It's so (laughs)
2: gross.
0: (laughs) Well, and in a nice bit of conceptual continuity, Anna Margaret would later roll around in a giant pile of baked beans in the Tommy movie. And I posted a GIF of this in our Slack and everyone was disgusted by it.
2: The new fad that's sweeping the nation, wasting food.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're British.
2: They should know better.
0: (laughs) The instrumental track is basically a duet with Keith Moon on drums and John providing all the the peppy horn work. I'm not sure who's doing the the organ, uh, but I know a lot of them, John and Keith kind of split off and did a lot of their own ads throughout the album. I'm not going to pretend there's anything profound here, but this dumb little throwaway did get stuck in my head all the time. It's also responsible for educating me on the cultural tradition of tea being a meal in the UK.
2: (laughs) I did not know that. And baked beans on toast, common like British snack. Yeah, who doesn't love baked beans
0: for every meal?
3: (laughs) (laughs) When I was there, I had a a jacket potato, which is a potato just... Covered in big beans.
0: Now it might be a good time to mention the album Petra Hayden sings The Who Sell Out. Petra Hayden was a member of the 90s alternative band That Dog, and she has since gone on to play with dozens of other bands, including The Decembrists and The Rentals. And in 2005, she released an a cappella note for note cover of this album where she did all of the vocals herself, and it's pretty incredible.
4: What's for tea, daughter?
2: more music more music more music yeah it's a really really good album I, I I'm I'm kind of suspicious of all things acapella by default but yeah. it, it I don't know like she really commits to the bit like just every single little instrumental bit on the Who Sell app becomes represented through vocals and uh, and honestly she has a really lovely voice I guess you don't care where Carmen San Diego is rich <laughs> <laughs> yeah on, on a certain level like
1: this ad and many of the ads on this this album are are silly they're they're almost dumb in a kind of way and yet i would i would never want to hear a version of this album that stripped these out yeah it wouldn't sound right right and and so many of these uh these jiggles and the the little interludes in between them like i i can't imagine the album with them. i can't imagine these songs without them as the introductions or as as the fade outs it, it, it's it's a slightly different context but kind of a context that a, a comparable context um that's popping in my head is the the various orchestral interludes and in Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues? <laughs> in that like in theory you could you know the the orchestration on that album isn't good in like the most technical sense. Like it, there there are things to poke at it, but if you got rid of all those intermediate bits, the album would be like thirty minutes long. If you got rid of all the the jingles on here, you'd lose the soul of the album, and you would and you would cut it down a lot. I I never want to ditch things like this stupid pig bean song that (laughs) it's stuck in my head all the freaking time
0: now what if what if you took the interstitials from this album and put it on today's or future past
1: that would be
3: amazing
0: (laughs) i want to hear that (laughs) yes
1: and vice
2: versa
3: (laughs) it might sound a little like this
1: ben what do you think
3: i love this like more than some of the real songs on here it's it's so clever and inventive and funny and musical too Uh, it's, It's a showcase for John Entwistle's cracked, gothic sense of humor. And the musical theme is genuinely rousing. Like, I think Entwistle wrote it. I've never heard anything saying otherwise. I love how it builds with each go around and just gets weirder and more outrageous until it sounds like there's a Fourth of July parade or maybe a Guy Fawkes Day parade marching through your stereo. And you could definitely forgive the Heinz Company for passing up on this one. Running this commercial for Heinz might have caused them to go belly up. And then John Kerry would have had to marry some other heiress, like uh, from the Hunt's Fortune or the Hebrew National Fortune, (laughs) or even worse, marry for love. So thank God it didn't come to that.
2: Well, I don't think Heinz is exactly hurting financially, given that they're responsible for the only good ketchup ever. (laughs) (laughs) I also
3: like that the band played both sides on this album On one hand, they were kind of ironically making fun of of commercialism, but if Hines had written them a check for this song, they'd have cashed the hell out of it. So it's easy to look at this song and think that it might have been a throwaway, and it definitely could have been a throwaway, but I think it's a masterpiece.
0: Well, and I heard that early on they were at least flirting with the idea of legitimately getting companies to basically buy ad time on the album (laughs) to make jingles for them to actually get paid for it and i don't think they got very far with that idea but i'm amazed that never caught on
2: <laughs> that would have been a fun subplot on madman Yeah. (laughs) Rich, you got anything? I don't really have anything musically on this one. You guys have said everything that really needs to be said. I do agree that it sounds like a John Entwistle song. I wouldn't be surprised if it was him. But uh, in terms of the flow of the album, the pirate radio thing, uh, it took me a while to really get what this album was going for with the theme. Because from an American perspective, like the whole flow of the album, it kind of just sounds like how radio always sounds like uh, with the bumpers and advertisements and stuff. Uh, But the BBC, they didn't have ads. It was the pirate radio stations who needed to sell ads to fund their broadcasting. So uh, what I like about a song like this is that the who get to have their cake and eat it too, because they're selling out while while also paying tribute to the counterculture. It was Hmm. it was such a very specific moment in time for British music. And I, I learned a lot about it just researching this one dumb song.
0: It's hey, a good <laughs> distinction i forgot the bbc didn't have ads
2: yeah then there was yeah. basically like no officially sanctioned way to listen to rock music it's nuts to me that rock music managed to flourish at all in the uk with a, when radio one didn't even exist until like after this album came out uh, and it, just from a modern spotify era perspective it, it feels like you had to jump through so many hoops in the uk to hear anything that wasn't elevator music for a while cool moment in time and the song is like a little window into it the bbc is
3: it's a weird thing at least from america because it's it's radio in the public interest and not just radio run for the benefit of local car dealerships so
1: that's <laughs> admirable all right so with all that let's go on to some more music more music more music more music <laughs> <laughs> next track is called marianne with a shaky hand
4: Up. I dance with G. I dance with Cindy. Let us suddenly see Mary Ann with the shaky pants. What they do to a man.
0: So Pete Townsend shows up on track three with a nice wholesome song about a popular girl with an unfortunate hand trimmer. There is no other interpretation of this song
2: that I could ever
0: think of, especially from the band that did Pictures of Lily the same year.
2: Her milkshake brings all the boys to the yard.
0: (laughs) I really like this one. It's, it's, It's kind of... There are a lot of songs on here that it's not that they're not great songs, but it's kind of hard to really pick out like compositional brilliance in them. And this one has just a nice breezy feel to it. Uh, there's another version of this that has an electric guitar and an organ, It's played by Al Cooper. I I like both versions, but I'm glad they picked this one. This one has more of the Latin feel to it, which I think gives a good variety to the album. The organ one might have been a little more, just kind of would have blended and just kind of gone unnoticed. But I really like the the different feel here. Um, but I don't have a lot else to say about it actually.
1: Just a quick note: there are actually three versions of this one. Yeah, um, there's another version that that has electric guitar but without the organ.
2: Oh, Ben, did you talk about all three versions in your book?
1: I sure as heck did two ninety
3: nine dollars 99 <laughs> on Amazon.com.
1: Ben, you want to um, talk about them?
3: <laughs> I actually, I like the single version the best. They're all great. Um, maybe it's just because the single version is more obscure and I haven't heard it too many times, but it's got this huge rumbling voice of God bass line by John Entwistle that just really uh, sets it apart. But it's a great song no matter what. You know, the, the draw is that it's about, well... It's about what it's about. And that's funny and cheeky. Even if you stripped away the, the body part, uh, you, <laughs> you still have one of those on. classic mid 60s who pop melodies and sung with those classic mid 60s who harmonies.
1: Yeah, my favorite version of the song just as an absolute unit is is the electric version. But this is the one that I'm glad is on the album. I can't really imagine the the harder electric one uh, in this spot. Also, it, it has the a detail at the end that just cracks me up every single time, which is the shaky voiced fade out.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's delightful. Richie, have anything?
2: I have another cover to play so way back in our x-ray specs episode we talked about yola tango's covers album yola tango is murdering the classics yes where donors to the wfmu radio station would call in with cover suggestions and yola tango would perform the song whether they knew it or not (laughs) and so as we learn they did not know oh bondage up yours by x-ray specs they didn't know it at all Uh, but (laughs) apparently they're very familiar with marianne and the shaky hands because their cover is pretty spot on Yeah, they didn't murder that classic. That's Uh, what happens when you have a music critic in the band. (laughs) Yeah, between this and sampling "Armenia City in the Sky, they must really love the Who Sell Out. And (laughs) I really love the Who Sell Out, so hey.
0: You know, one thing I thought about, like, this wasn't like a gigantic success at the time, I don't think. So I wonder how the kind of cult status brewed over the years. Because it seems like it definitely had a big... You know, kind of underground, about underground, but a cult following that has sort of of grown over the decades.
2: Well, my dad never actually heard this album at the time, but he told me about the album cover all the time, like just as just the thing he associated with it. And I think that the cover plays a large role in its uh, in its legacy. Yeah, and it just happens to be a really good album as well. Yeah, this
0: was the first two album that was not like messed around with for the U.S. uh, market too. Yeah, I guess '67 was the big year for British bands to actually get their albums released in the U S untouched.
3: I mean, I wasn't around for, for this album's comeback, but it might've been kind of a backlash to this idea that the who was bargain and Baba right. O'Reilly uh-huh. and won't get fooled again. And someone along the line must've said, no, actually there's this, they, they did something different and enough people heard it
1: and, and loved it. That's my guess. That's a good point. Yeah. That's about what I was going to say as well. All right, let's move on. To another one of the product placement tracks, this is an ode to love, loss, and body odor. <laughs> this is Odorono.
2: Okay, but before Odorono starts, we get a really quick snippet for uh, of advertising for Premier Drums.
3: The best kind of ad you can't understand what the name of the company is
2: <laughs> i love the gag on this album of the band tossing out free advertising for all their favorite musical instruments yeah mm-hmm. instruments that they're presumably gonna murder later anyway
3: <laughs> but I, I would always hear it and think oh harrigan drums i should buy some harrigan drums if i ever start to play so i don't know if it
0: works. i always heard arrogant drums <laughs> like, who wants those
2: <laughs> okay well we've sold some drums here's the deodorant Kind of Beatles-y.
3: Yeah. My love donkey. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: (laughs) She sang the best she'd ever sang. She could never sing any better. But Mr. Davidson never rang. She knew he would forget her. had really looked her best She could never look any better But she knew she'd failed the test She knew he would forget her Triumphant was the way she felt As she acknowledged the applause Triumphant was the way she felt
0: That drumming... When she saw him so interesting. Of all of the product placement tracks, this one seems to be the most fleshed out. It uh, could probably pass as a normal song if you remove the punchline at the end about her having bo. Uh, but <laughs> you know, and I kind of get the sense that this song might have been a normal song that was retrofitted to fit the concept of the album. Uh, don't know for sure, but that's my suspicion. And I, you know, I did not know that Odorona was an actual brand name in the UK.
2: I was, I was just, yeah, something I think made it's, up I think it's a US brand name. Is it? Yeah. Oh, uh, it. With, with a ridiculous name.
0: No, no, I'm not used to deodorant, so whatever. <laughs> but apparently, they weren't very happy about them using their name on the album. So. I don't know why they're mad about getting free advertising, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) I, I really like this. I think this is probably the strongest of these product placement songs. Like it has some actual drama to it. And it's got the great dynamics of the triumphant section. I really, Mm -hmm. really like it.
2: Yeah, this one's fun because the album is a mix of pop songs, ad bumpers and jingles. And uh, this is the only track that kind of uh, metamorphoses over the course of the song. Like it starts out as a pop song. Then it pulls out the rug from under you at the end with the punchline that it's secretly been a jingle all along. (laughs) It's the kind of detail that makes this album feel unpredictable to me. Ben? So I I like Dance Theory
3: for just how this might've been a regular song that was jammed into the concept of the album. But I'm wondering also if it went the opposite of that, where like they intended for every, every fake advertisement to be this melodic and intricate, but they just couldn't sustain it. And by the end, they're just like, Keith, play the drums and say the name of the drums. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a really pleasant song. It's well-performed. And the twist at the end is just hilarious. I like it a lot. I think that it's better conceptually than as a radio song. It's brilliant misdirection. And it's the rare song that can kind of sit comfortably as an advertisement, but also as a legitimate song. Whereas I think Heinz Baked Beans that we talked about and then Medak, which we'll talk about in a bit, they have more oomph and more staying power and they're more clever than this one. But you could never picture them as radio songs odorono could exist in both worlds which is really cool but if you just isolate the world of, of being a hit song it's good it's not going to fly
1: to the top of the charts i once sang this acapella at a church variety show in my 20s Wow! <laughs> i slowed it down a little bit some friends of mine in the audience told me afterwards that a couple of them had brought uh one of them had brought a guitar and the other uh, was saying they were said they were sorely tempted to re- run up and start providing me accompaniment as I was doing this. <laughs> um, at the end, I pulled out of my pocket a bit of Mitchum deodorant where I had slapped like a piece of paper with some tape on it and written the word "odorono" on it to like present it in a in a final flourish with my hands. I had, I had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I love I love this song. It's Again, it, it it's so ridiculous that this exists. It's so ridiculous <laughs> that this exists with the who. Um, this is this is the type of track that explains why I love this album so much. Because for all of the the really great and stunning uh you know, proper songs uh that we're going to get over the rest of this, to have something like this well fleshed out that you know could have just been it, this song did not have to be as good as it is like it's not a great all time classic who song but it didn't have to be as good as this is so yeah I'm I, I'm really really fond of this one
2: and that's Pete Townsend singing on this one yes yes it is he sings a lot on this album he does yeah you get a surprising amount of Pete Townsend because I, I really I really like his voice but the, you, you always get the feeling because Roger Daltrey didn't do anything else so when Pete Townsend was singing like what was he off doing drinking playing tambourine <laughs>
3: dancing, tambourine, swinging the microphone around.
2: Oh, the studio? No, I mean, I, <laughs> I have nothing but respect for what Roger Daltrey brings to the band. I just mean that like every Pete Townsend vocal spot is just like a, a blank space in in the mix for Roger Daltrey. Yeah. Basically. He's learned to play chess with Ringo in the next studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've always really loved his voice. I, I don't think he has the pipes to carry the band's songs on his own, but I think he chooses his performance as well. And in general, there are very few of his songs where I'd rather that Dalt would be on the mic instead. I, I think that Eminence Front is one of the major examples of this. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, it's good character. Yeah, their dynamic kind of reminds me of uh, the Wilson sisters from *Heart*, Like, Nancy sings sometimes, and she has a less technically impressive voice than Anne, but... Having Nancy sing a few occasional songs makes Anne's voice feel all the more just powerful by contrast when it shows up again. I thought you were going to say from Wilson Phillips. I did the, too. The words too.
4: That's
2: <laughs> true, yeah. Uh,
3: so, you know, one of my hot takes in the book, most of which you'll have to pay for, uh, but is that, I mean, first off, I think Daltrey is just massively underrated uh, because. I mean, he was with three brilliant instrumentalists. And so it's easy for him to sort of be seen as, okay, he's just up there singing and playing the tambourine. Uh, But I think what he brought kind of like the, the muscular vocals that he brought and eventually very nuanced and and beautiful vocals, most vocalists could not have brought and didn't bring in the sixties. Whereas I think Townsend sang too often, Uh, he was a, a brilliant vocal harmonist. I don't, always love his lead vocals I mean he could do kind of like naked and vulnerable and light and wispy in a way that Roger couldn't but I don't think a lot of the whos songs really call for that and I do think you know not only was Roger off like Dan said playing chess or learning chess but it's kind of a waste because I think a lot of the time Roger could have sung the song better like he had Roger Dalter in the band why did he have to to kick him kick him off stage and and sing on his own that's just that's my take on it
0: one thing that's interesting, actually, was watching an interview this, this afternoon where it wasn't until around this time that he realized that Roger could sing high registers. That, like, he, I guess, did more of the R&B style and Pete was kind of relegated to more of the oh, okay. the, the higher yeah. stuff. And then, like, he heard him singing one day. I was like, oh, you can do that. And I <laughs> think that Tommy, they really took that to the next level with him doing that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but for the most part, I, I agree with your take about Dolter being underrated, but I would, I would say that I think that the, we need to have Roger singing as much as possible phase starts with Tommy mm-hmm. and maybe the lead, the, some of the live touring leading up to it. I think in this, it, it, in this album, I'm not necessarily sure I would want Roger singing any of Pete's at least may, maybe this one, but not necessarily any of the ballads. Just mm-hmm. this is my personal preference. That's fair. I, and I just think, Pete fancies himself – well, Pete is
3: a rock and roller. He's he's a rock and roll guitar god. He's Mr. Tough, Rough, guitar windmilling. And then he gets in front of the mic, and he's a little like Mickey Mouse. Uh, so I just – I think there's songs where just his his guitar playing fits the bill, but his vocals
1: don't. All right, that's fair.
2: Hot dog. I call that a bargain. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, I got to recover myself. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to the next
2: track. This one is called Tattoo. But first, we have an ad spot from Wonderful Radio London.
4: It's smooth sailing with the highly successful sound of Wonderful Radio London.
2: Also stolen. I think I've been trained by hip-hop to expect, like, a big beat to come in there or something. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway here's Tattoo
3: Some of that high register. I mean, he didn't do a ton of it before yeah. Tommy. This is just sort of peeking its its head out.
2: Oh yeah, this is a great Deltry performance.
4: Our old
0: This is one of my favorite Who songs ever. I, I I love this song. It's a great story. It's funny. And it's genuinely kind of touching. You know, for all of Pete's, you know, big dramatic grandeur with Tommy and Quattrophenia, I kind of find this more emotionally affecting than anything on those albums in a weird way. Yeah, there's something about that wistful melody that I'm just a sucker for. And just the vocal treatment is, is gorgeous here. And... There's something tricky that Pete's doing with the time on the guitar. I can't tell what he's doing exactly. If he's just kind of dropping out a beat somewhere, but it's really interesting. And I think they, they kind of dumb it down a bit on the Live at Leeds version, because I heard that version first and I heard this one and thought, oh, that's different. There's a, like a weird little nuance to this version that's missing there. Um, but yeah, I, I love, love, love this song.
1: Yeah, I love this one, too. I love it both in the in the studio version where it's more delicate and in the various live performances, whether live at Leeds, live at Hull, various uh, other places where it pop up later. It, it captures one of the things I really like about Pete Townsend, which is that like he, he approaches masculinity in like a very, very thoughtful way.
2: hmm Yeah, definitely.
1: Like something that the this song reminds me of is something my, my dad once uh told me about. Like when he was uh you know, coming into his early 20s and he uh, he was looking forward to when he would be old enough to drink and i remember him telling me that like it didn't really have anything to do with whether or not he would actually like liquor or not and he said that initially like he didn't he said that the main thing was just like he wanted to drink something that was adult and didn't taste like soda pop hmm. and the idea that like there are these uh these milestones, the, these, uh, these signs of, of passing out of childhood, uh, into adulthood that, that people glom onto, you know, whether they make sense in retrospect or not is immaterial. Like, you know, people do this men and women will each have their own, uh, things that they glom onto and say like, this is my, this is my way of no longer being a child. I'm now an adult. And Pete grabbing onto this idea with the tattoos of, yeah, this is probably a, dumb idea but like i am a man now and i'm going to hold on to this it's just a really interesting uh perspective from you know one of the really one of the wisest songwriters uh from this era of rock to me Mm
4: -hmm.
2: yeah yeah i'm with you on that this feels to me like one of the songs that kind of signals the arrival of like the Pete Townsend songwriting voice that would write themes and narratives as complex and layered as the ones on Tommy and Quadrophenia. Like uh, you're right. He really crams a lot into the lyrics of this song. It's like, it's a coming of age story, but you also got some commentary about like, the pressure to conform to these arbitrary societal standards of masculinity that you talked about, John, uh, and he got a best bit of domestic drama with just the right amount of very British dark humor. Like, I, yeah. I, I love how the mom and dad each take issue with a different tattoo and then use that to split up the beating duties accordingly. Yeah. It's so nuanced. It's so perfect.
3: (laughs) They just sneak the child abuse in there. You barely even realize it's happening. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But uh, I've also read people comparing this to a character study by Ray Davis from the Kinks. And I, I, I can definitely hear that. But Pete Townsend's own sense of humor and the Hughes like studio discipline and unique sense of musicianship do a lot to make this a who song rather than just a warmed over Kinks song. And uh, I, I agree. This is one of the classics on this album. Uh, in an album filled with classics, yeah, I like
3: that insight, Rich, about the the Kinks. Um, you know how it's like them, but how it's different.
2: Well, that was just in something I read, but thank you, person I read. <laughs> hmm. The Who were
3: great at harmonies. Uh, you don't hear as much about them. At, you hear a lot about the Who, but not as much about their harmonies as you do about the Beatles' harmonies, the Beach Boys, and the Birds, and, and those are all deservedly, you know, famous for their harmonies, but. The Who were just amazing at it. The, the mix of Daltrey and uh, Entwistle and Townsend together. Uh, it's just incredible. And these are some of the best harmonies that they ever sang here on this song. You know, Daltrey's great on his own. But then when they come together in that little chorus, it's just it, it blows me away. The harmonies, they, they shimmer. The lyrics kind of peter out at the end, don't they? Like a Rudy Toot Yeah, like he just kind of left roger hanging there like didn't finish the song uh but in any case you know i'm with dan i I love this one it's hilarious and and sweet and charming
2: i kind of take that ending as like the person has found the love of his life and they're just like drifting off you know singing sweet nothings to each other Mm. but that's but that's really stretching it (laughs) otherwise i can't really tell what pete was going for
1: all right let's go on to the next one this is this is another one that i
2: adore this is called "Our Love Was," and "Our Love Was" begins with one of my favorite ad breaks on the album.
4: Radio, London, you, go to the church of your
2: I will. Uh, That's such a great segue. Yeah, this is probably the best transition on the album. It, it really sounds like the riff is like bursting from the tinny speakers of a transistor radio. <laughs>
4: Our love was fast.
3: I had a resource from my book, probably from Wikipedia, uh, that these ads, the ones that are not by The Who, are by Pam's Productions from Texas. And they had been purchased by Radio London, you know, used on the air and then stolen by The Who.
0: Well, it's funny. It's Radio London was run by a guy who lived in Texas, of all places. Oh, wow. Yeah.
3: I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a really nice one. I like uh, just kind of the breezy mood of it. And the way it has these breaks that sort of just like jolted into kind of like an accelerated rocker where there's the great love, 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 long section that sounds like it was just tailor-made for a Wes Anderson movie. Love,
4: love, 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 love
0: can you just see luke wilson running somewhere
2: (laughs) in slow motion
0: (laughs) this is a fun one to do the stereo versus mono comparison uh, because here you get two completely different guitar solos the stereo version has this fuzzy guitar solo with kind of a lot of Hendrixy string bends. While well, the mono is just a totally different vibe altogether.
1: Regarding Townsend as a guitarist, you know, I, I wouldn't say that Pete Townsend is my favorite guitarist because you know there, there's a, there's a few that I would uh, almost certainly put above him. But I would say that if I could play guitar like anybody, it would probably be like Pete Townsend. Um, just in terms of the mix of, of 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 how we can go from the delicate to the rough uh, in in his rhythm playing, And even though he's not the flashiest soloist, there's a power in all of his solos, whatever approach he takes, um, that really bowls me over. And, you know, for, for years I had been, I had only known, um, the stereo guitar solos of, from the 95 remix. And then, uh, from the original, and I only, uh, listened to the mono one, um, in the last month or so. It, It is really fascinating to me that he's, uh, able to to get such different feels into the song uh with all the, those different approaches but they all sound like they make sense they all f- feel like they fit and i'm it's i am I'm really impressed with them again like not not just as a a player not just as a songwriter but as a craftsman of how he shapes a guitar solo. and yeah as for the song itself i really like it i agree that uh you know without uh you know the extra uh touches thrown in it wouldn't it wouldn't be a great song. But because he throws in all those those various touches, it it elevates really high for me.
3: Yeah, I like your take on Pete as guitarist and I'll focus here on Keith Moon as drummer. The the hoary old line you hear sometimes is that Keith Moon just bashed all over the place and he couldn't keep time. And so Townsend and End Whistle had to kind of step up and, and do the drummer's job on their instruments. Mm. But that's hogwash. I never listen to The Who and think, oh, something's missing in the beat. Uh, Keith Moon always plays the beat, but almost uniquely in rock history. He also plays interesting fill after interesting fill on top of the beat and around the beat and next to the beat. Almost like extra beats that no other drummer would have thought to bring to the song. But then after that sound essential to the song and you couldn't picture it without those grooves. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to remember the Who sell out as the band's funny, fake commercial album, which it is, and it's amazing because of that. But there's also songs like this that aren't really part of the concept, uh, but they're still amazing. Uh, Our Love Was is jangly and soaring musically, but at the same time, it's grounded by lyrics that that are an honest, nuanced look at a failed relationship. If it doesn't have that usual Who crunch Uh, Which we get in most of their music, uh, especially songs like So Sad About Us from their second album, which is similar to this one as a composition, but just a lot harder. crunch but i don't miss it here because this song is it's just exquisite
2: i have a question for the more intense who fans here uh, about their live set list because uh, yeah. i noticed and, and john observed earlier that they've performed almost none of this album live and i can understand that with like really intense studio creations like armonia city in the sky and uh like i can see for miles which we're going to talk about in a second but uh, they they also just Almost completely neglect songs like this one that mm-hmm. seemed like they would work really, really well in a live setting. Like to-
1: they just had two different personas. Okay, they, yeah. they merged the two personas a little more closely once they got to the seventies and beyond. Once technology for the stage improved
2: yeah i did notice that live who and studio who seem to almost be like two different silos in a way they are they won't get fooled again it just seems it just seems strange to me on this album which is filled with like what, what to me feel like very stage ready pop songs it's funny because even
0: though by uh live at Leeds, they're still playing a lot of covers they are and there was no like shortage of material for them to play so maybe they were just trying to play stuff they could just bash out and get teenagers excited
1: yeah i think that's more or less what they were going for there is one track we'll get to later in this album that they actually did play live. You, you, if, if you don't know what it is already, you might be a little surprised.
0: That song is Medak, right? Yes. Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's move on to another great one. This is I Can See for Miles. But first,
2: who wants to buy some bass strings? It's like
3: five seconds long and it's
0: catchy. They, they were really good.
2: Yeah. And now a song that we've heard come out of an ad break a whole bunch of times in our day. (laughs) Nothing but rock. (laughs) Let's talk more rock.
4: I know you deceive me, now here's a surprise know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles miles. Oh yeah If you think that I don't know about the little tricks you play
2: Listening to the bone, classic rock that rocks.
0: <laughs> this song is one of the reasons why I stand by the stereo mix. I think even in the stereo version, most of the short interstitials are in mono. So when that tight sound strings add transitions into this song, and the soundscape just instantly widens with that first chord, and you hear the drum hits in the right speaker, it just sounds Like, something huge is coming. Like, it feels like the ground is splitting in half in front of you. And, you know, it would take a few more years for The Who to hit their big arena rock peak. But I really don't think they had a more hard-hitting song than this one. You know, even as great as This Won't Get Fooled Again is, there's just an anger and a menace to this one that just smolders. And one of my favorite touches is the one note guitar solo that Pete just hammers out. It's like he's so mad, it's all he can be bothered to play. It's like just clenching his fist.
2: Yeah, and they worked on this for like forever, right? This was supposed to be like the ultimate Who studio song. Yeah, it was the big. They knew it was gonna be the big single. Yeah, and I like them just spending uh, what must have been like untold amounts of time on this one note guitar solo. Yeah, <laughs> the
0: the Stanley Kubrick of guitar solos, just take it or take <laughs> I, I just love the way this song plays with tension in particular I like how the chorus if you listen to the drums Keith is just doing like this climbing drum roll through half of it until it finally releases it's like you're just climbing and then finally just boosh you get this release and there's also just a, a great bridge in this that brings about this key change that kind of shifts the entire tone of the song for the last chorus
4: the Eiffel Tower and the All might see a You thought that I would need a crystal ball to see right through the haze. Well, there's a poke at you, you're gonna choke on it too. You're gonna lose that smile, because all the while, I could see for miles and miles. I could see for
1: miles. I'm calling it. This is my favorite Who song. It's a good one. Awesome. It's a good choice, yeah. And it might be my favorite song of the 60s. Mm, also not a bad choice. Because just in terms of the combination of, uh, on the one hand, like the gritty garage rock at the highest possible level um in the instruments, but that vocal melody is, it's something. And especially when you get to that, the Eiffel Tower and the Taj Mahal part, like that is not trivial. That's a really sophisticated outgrowth of the rest of the song. Like this is a song, you know, that would work both in in the in the context of of a garage rock band cover it, and also and especially because of those harmonies, I could see an a cappella group doing this. Just in terms of the harmonies. Like it's like you can you can uh you can do a lot with that sound.
2: Well, and again that literally has been done because there's the version by Petra Hayden.
4: I can see for miles and miles I can see for miles and miles. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, and miles.
1: Oh, yeah. See, I, I'm absolutely in love with this song. If somebody prefers, uh, you know, one of the, the bigger songs from their arena rock era as, as their top five whatever, I'm not going to object to it. But yeah, I, I absolutely adore this one and this is one of the songs that completely converted me to them uh once I finally got around to 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 really giving them a shot.
0: It's no squeeze box, but it's close. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: I was originally gonna be like, don't you mean I can see for kilometers, but it turns uh. out that British people use miles, not kilometers. Well yeah, I think I think I actually read though that they were they were converting around this time mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think they still use miles Regardless of you being on the metric system Anyway, <laughs> uh, this feels to me Kind of like a cousin song of uh, Eight Miles High by The Birds mm. Yes, very much
4: Eight miles high And when
2: you touch down you find that it's Stranger than no Yeah, not just the word miles, but also just the incredibly concophonous kind of psychedelic soundscape. You really feel like you're just swimming in tension with this song. But also like we were talking about the, uh, the the sort of siloing of live who and studio who and this is basically like the ultimate studio who creation like yep. uh, they didn't play it for basically all of the 70s is my understanding live because mm-hmm. they, they just couldn't. It was too much for Keith Moon. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but when I listen to a song like that, I realize that they really managed to have it both ways as like a superior live band and also just as uh, innovative studio craftsman like they, they did a lot to shape how rock bands perform live just in general stacks of amps, PA systems, you know, big explosive finishes to every single song. Uh, but they also at the same time have a song like this. That's like such a dense studio creation that again, it, it took them more than a decade to figure out how to play one of their biggest hit singles on stage, which is, which is nuts to me. Well, you know that,
1: what It kind of, kind of reminds me of it. This is going into the, the weeds of the band that I'm going to mention, but, uh, yes, did not play South Side of the Sky live for about 30 years. Oh. like And, and like people would just constantly be clamoring after them to do it. <laughs> there, there was this one silly time where like <laughs> it's their free birth. like Well, like at like a, a fan convention, uh, somebody like asked them the question for like the gazillion time. And like Steve Howe like literally hid under a table because he didn't want to hear the question again. He, but like this kind of reminds me of that. Is, is just this idea of, like they're just being this this one off amazing song that you know whether because of the percussion whether because of the of the harmonies um, the band just didn't want to try it they mm-hmm. just knew that they weren't going to live up to it and I'm glad that that eventually like they figure out a way to do at least a proxy version of it the later live versions are fine but they're never going to match up to the studio one
3: I really like all of your your commentary on this I was just I really got a lot out of that. This is a great song. I mean, I echo all of you. Uh, I think it was our old reviewing buddy, Mark Prindle, who pointed out that this is a four and a half minute drum solo Hmm. underneath all that. And it's an amazing one. Uh, But just to go back to my point from earlier, Keith Moon, he's playing a solo, but he keeps the beat just fine. Those cymbal crashes, they're timed perfectly to just amp up the drama of the song. Uh, Roger's vocal here is psychedelic, but it's in a different, darker way than it was on Armenia City in the Sky. This whole thing is ominous. It's got clever but uneasy dynamics. But as, at the same time, it has a great radio chorus. It's melodic and harmonized like all their best work. So that's why you have this weird, paranoid, jagged, delusional song that is still deservedly on the radio 54 years later.
1: One of the I want to jump in with before we move on is that... Um, Pete Townsend considered this the band's best song, and he was very angry that it wasn't a hit. And there's this great quote where he said, after it it failed to become a number one, he said, to me it was the ultimate Who record, yet it didn't sell. I spat on the British record buyer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And this was their biggest hit in the U.S. It hit number nine, which uh, wasn't high enough for Pete Townsend. He wanted number one everywhere, ever. Yep, (laughs) Including cash box. (laughs) All right, let's move on. The next song is called I Can't Reach You. But before we get to I Can't Reach You, there is an ad for a Charles Atlas exercise course.
5: The Charles Atlas course with dynamic tension can turn you into a beast of a man. A beast of a man that's
2: end whistle sense of humor there i love it i used to read a big box of my dad's old archie superman and beetle bailey comics and they were just filled with ads about buff guys on the beach kicking sand onto 98 pound weaklings like it was a major concern <laughs> of the time apparently
3: <laughs> also did archie superman and beetle bailey team up
2: yeah that was the name of just one comic man <laughs> 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 okay here's i can't reach you
4: A billion ages past you, a million years behind you too, a thousand miles up in the air, a trillion times I've seen you there. Your hair is golden, mine is gray. You walk on grass it turns to hay. Your blood is blue and your eyes are red. My body. can't reach you. I strained my eyes. I can't reach you. I split my sides. I can't reach. Try to get on your feet, feel or hear from
0: you. So, when you think coming after, I can see for miles is bound to sound like a bit of a calm down, and th- this definitely is. It's kind of. I think writing in a similar mood as some of the other tracks on side one, um, but there are some nice little stops and starts to kind of make it interesting. And the whole pun about I can't reach you, I guess, is clever-ish.
2: <laughs> but, wait, uh, wait, what's the pun? Well, he's he's yeah. old. I, I need to have it explained to me.
0: He's old, so he can he literally can't reach her.
2: Oh, okay, gotcha.
0: But yeah, it's. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I. We're getting into a bit of a. I have issues with side too, that we will get to later, and this is kind of the
2: beginning of it. And I like the piano on the song. I also, I also really like John Entwistle's bass at, on this one. He's, well, he's great in general. He's he's great at making his presence known and leading a song forward confidently without absolutely dominating the song. I, I just like it when bass is an active piece of a band sound and not just, you know, the low notes in the background. And I think the song is a good example.
3: Yeah, he never wanted to be unobtrusive. Uh, he, he never wanted to dominate the song. But at the same time, he didn't just want to be in the background like you described. And he plays something interesting on every who song. He's 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 a beast of a man. He was just so good.
2: Yeah, and it's not like Paul McCartney who's off, you know, playing his own amazing song that complements the song, (laughs) uh, which is its own like amazing way to be a bassist. But I I like Entwistle's uh, approach as well. This
3: is a, I mean, I'm I'm with Dan in that it's a little bit of a come down, but I also think it's a sleeper classic. I mean, it's conceptually there's not a lot going on, which can be a letdown from the other songs on the album, but it's just a fantastic pop song with a huge hook. Uh, this is one of those songs where I'd argue that Pete should have left the vocal to Roger. I think the song requires some power that I don't know if if Pete's voice can project, but he sings pretty, and he doesn't detract from just an excellent pop rock song.
2: I like Pete Townsend's vocals, but I'm with you on this one. This would be a way better Daltrey song. I adore
1: this one, and I, I don't. So with the line "You're so alive, and I'm nearly dead," I don't think that it's that he's actually literally dead. I think that it's a. When I hear this song, I hear this as basically um, kind of a love across uh, class lines. Mm -hmm. It's like a like a servant lawning uh, for for a woman who who's part of the family that 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 oversees the land or something like so you have uh, something with the. The line, your blood is blue and your eyes are red, my body's strange and but the nerves are dead. Like he's he's a farm laborer or or some kind of menial worker who's just absolutely lo- in love with this this woman that he can't possibly have. And the line, once I caught a glimpse of your unguarded, t- untouched heart, our fingertips touched in then and my mind tore us apart. Just this I he he has this fantasy that's just just killing him. It's just ripping him apart. So, yeah, I I get a lot out of this one. It's minor, but it's one of the best – to me, it's one of the best minor songs of the Who ever did.
3: Yeah, the lyrics are fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I don't always notice, again, because the, the arrangement is – it's a little generic, but it's it's a really thoughtful song. And, again, it's, it's incredibly catchy.
2: And I'm going to cycle back to our episode on the jam because I, I can't think of this song without thinking of the jam song Smithers-Jones, uh, which mm-hmm. takes sure. – more than a little of its DNA from I Can't Reach You. And because I got into the jam. A couple of years before I got into The Who, uh, my brain interprets this as the derivative song, even though that's completely wrong in terms of chronology and influence and the way time works. Uh, but, if you're, <laughs> but if you're a fan of The Who and don't know the jam, I highly recommend checking them out. And Ben hosted an episode on their album Setting Suns a couple of years ago. Uh, it actually it had had, Yeah, it had the exact same panel as this episode. Yeah. This is a reunion. It's very fitting.
3: Yep, and Paul Weller was a huge Who fan, and he he covered a couple of their songs.
1: All right, we're going to move on to another one of the ads. Uh, this one is called Medak.
5: Henry Pond had no fun, had a face like a current fan. This adolescent little fella was nicknamed by his friend's old Doctors gave him creams and lotions to try to soothe the boy's emotions. But all in baby he stayed. Henry's hopes began to fade. Then, when just about to crack, found another grief that I. When Henry in a mirror peered, and yelled, got Your face is like a baby's
0: bottom so john it gets like it's another jingle with his own track designation this one's a bit more meandering than the heinz baked beans ad um but it is a nice enough ditty about acne cream and I honestly would love to see this done with some 60s style animation in an ad. I think it's a missed opportunity. <laughs> I don't have much to say about this. Yeah, me neither. <laughs>
3: you all are Jinx. crazy. You all are crazy. No, I mean, I see this should be a throwaway. It sounds like it would be a throwaway, but to me, it's anything but. It, it's one of my favorite moments on the album. You got this all in one minute. You have a roller coaster of a story where, with heartbreak leading to self-improvement, leading to relief, leading to exaltation, and all coated in that, that cracked Whistle humor. And Whistle here, he's not the greatest lead singer. He's an amazing harmony singer. But he sings with genuine empathy for the subject of, of this minute-long fake commercial. I care about Henry. I want those jerky kids to stop making fun of him just because his skin doesn't look good. And I'm happy for him when Medac works and his skin clears up, and those jerky kids presumably find something else to make fun of him for
1: because kids are assholes. <laughs> wow, that was a wonderful, Ben. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I, I, I like I like the song. I think the song yeah. is fine. It's just a, yeah, you I know, like it too. A, it's just a minute long song about acne cream. If it were on a Guided by <laughs> Voices album, it would be the funny minute long song about acne cream amid among nineteen <laughs> other songs, and I would love it too. It, it's not secretly brilliant. But I just appreciate I think what it is, is
3: just so well done.
2: Yeah. And as for the subject matter, I'm convinced that all acne creams and pads are a sham perpetrated (laughs) on teenagers who are too young to know they're being swindled because I use so much of that and it never worked. And by the time you get old (laughs) enough to grow out of your acne, you've forgotten all about it. So (laughs) I I have a beef with acne cream. All right,
1: everyone get into a nice dark room, maybe stretch out a little bit.
2: And relax. I was going to prank you guys here with the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, but Mm. my conscience told me, don't do it.
4: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
2: Those harmonies my my we
4: try
0: a little back into the hippie vibes here, Pete said he was smoking weed around this point, and that's pretty much what this song is about. For me, this is actually the sleeper of the album. For a long time, this one just sort of passed me by, but going back to this album for this episode, it really started to stand out to me, and in particular, I really like the instrumental break with all of the kind of groovy droning and little effects there. We're getting into sort of a a slow stretch of the album, so I think that I would often kind of lump this song in with yeah, the next one, but uh, but I, I I like this one a lot. Yeah, I think this
1: one's pretty good. I I used to like this one less than I do now. Um, it, there, there's a lot of of interesting details, whether in the vocal harmonies, whether in the little details in the in the in the mid song break, a little production flourishes here and there um that have, have caused it to go up in my estimation uh so this one was done live
0: hmm. yes it was wow interesting so
1: this one is uh can be found on an archive release from a couple years ago of their 1968 film east show um and they do not have an organ on stage it's done with their st- standard guitar centric uh instrumentation they do the initial uh vocal parts as as normal as best they can and then there's a mid jam that's pretty much indistinguishable from the sorts of mid song jams that they would do during my generation. It's, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> and uh, I have a clip right here. Let's throw
2: that in. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Of the band, my
0: don't why.
2: Up to the What's the running time on that one? 12 minutes. Okay. Yeah, yeah like a lot <laughs> of live yeah. who you have to be in the mood for a really raucous 12 minute jam. But I don't know. I, I really like the, that live version of relax. It's filled with kind of a, an energy that's lacking in the studio version. The, though I like the organ in the studio one. Ben, I disagree with Dan here, uh, but I'm still going to
3: channel him because mm-hmm. whenever I listen to this song, I, I kind of hear in your voice, Dan, I hear, I, I kind of go, sure. Okay. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's just kind of there. Um, I, I always like when, when you comment on a song like that. Um, and that's just how I feel about this one. It's got a memorable enough hook and it's got some fuzz, but the who sound here, like they could be any band, uh, you have maybe it's the un-who like organ or the straight ahead drum beat that any non-keith moon could have played or the hippy dippy lyrics that any non-pete townsend could have written it's not a bad song i like that instrumental section that i think dan was talking about you have this dark stinging guitar solo in the middle that make the, to me sounds like uh the jefferson airplane and yorma and Kalkonen on lead guitar This is near the bottom of the songs on the album for me. Near. And that's a, a segue to the next song.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, with that rousing endorsement, let's move on to the next one. This is called Silas Stingy.
5: Once upon a time, now left an old miser man by the name of Silas Stingy.
4: Carried all his money in a little black box Which was heavy as a rock with a big padlock All the little kids would shout when Silas was about Money, 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 man Money, 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 bags. There goes Minji Stingy There goes Minji Stingy Money, 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 man Money, money, bags. There goes Minji Stingy Bingy,
0: yeah, this is the, the dud of the album. And I kind of I think it's a shame because John Entwistle had established himself as a decent songwriter on the previous album with a couple of good songs. But on this album, he's kind of limited to just a couple of the more novelty-ish commercial jingles in this song, which has always just brought the album to a screeching halt for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be a, a little more positive because I never liked this song, but in listening to this album over and over again the past few weeks, I, I will say it's at least got some interesting structural pieces to it. And it's the chorus that's just so grating. And I just it's got that <laughs> schoolyard thing to it that's just gross and annoying to me. <laughs> and what drives me crazy is, and, and this is going to be a theme for I think the next few songs, is... They had other songs that they'd recorded in the sessions. John Emerson wrote a song called Someone's Coming that Roger Daltrey sang, which is way better than this.
4: Good night, baby. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. Good night, baby. Gotta get a running. Gotta get a running. Your father doesn't like me. Told you that you couldn't see me anymore. That's why we meet in secret. That's why we're hiding here.
0: And I, I don't know why they went with this song. It's... Uh, does anybody like this song?
1: <laughs> I don't hate it, but I want to hear you guys. I'm going to
3: start. <laughs> I think in the future when I hear a song like this, I'm going to hear Dan um, going... <laughs> uh, I'm going to add that to my Dan repertoire in my head. Uh, Cause that's a great description of a song.
2: That's my ringtone <laughs> text message <laughs> because, I'm, yeah. because I have a ringtone in 2021.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm with everyone else here. Right. I assume uh, you, you guys are coming up, but, uh, Ed whistle was usually so good at writing these kind of nursery rhyme bass guitar melodies that, aren't melodic the way that you would expect from a Pete melody or even from a Paul McCartney bass line, like Rich was talking about, but they're still catchy and clever and enjoyable, but this one just doesn't work. Uh, you have, I do like the one dramatic descending bass riff where he's going, someone will steal it all. Otherwise, it's a real disappointment.
2: Yeah, this is the only song on the album I'd straight up cut if I were given full edit on the Who Sell Out. <laughs> but uh, but uh, this is a good opportunity to plug the tribute album, the new Sellout. actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, in 1999 and 2000, a bunch of power pop acts came together and recorded covers of this entire album, including updated commercial breaks. And uh, the whole project sat unreleased until Future Man Records distributed it in 2012. And I'm bringing this up now because there's a cover of Silas Stingy by Zumpano, which was the original band of AC Newman from the New Pornographers. And uh, to me, their version reveals that it was actually a pretty good song all along, just waiting for the right arrangement. What's the Carl Newman can fix anything.
3: Yeah, I think that's a vast <laughs> improvement. I think the verse melody is interesting,
1: but I'm still not that convinced. Okay, so I agree that this is the worst song on the album. <laughs> I don't quite hate it. I, I agree that the chorus is 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 very obnoxious. I, I like the way that it ends. It's such a ridiculous, dramatic build at the end, but it kind of works for me. Like the, the chugging drums with the... The very uh, serious Spanishy horn, uh, kind of tucked into the background, and then the lyrical twist about being so uh, concerned about his money that he accidentally lost it all. Like it, it almost makes it somewhat pay off. Now, almost is, is the <laughs> operative here. Um, it's it's still not actually a good song, um, you, not just comparatively but absolutely. But I don't hate it just because. By the end of it, I'm I'm not that mad at it.
3: I wouldn't call it a "quote
1: unquote" good
3: song, but <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yes.
1: Now, one that I would call a good song, though ah. I don't know if everyone agrees with me, uh, is coming up. This one is called Sunrise. Sunrise,
5: sunset. Yes. Sunrise, sunset. <laughs> Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. <laughs>
3: Note to self:
1: Stop doing anything. I forget the context. Find soulmate, Homer. So, yeah,
2: find your soulmate. Oh. Dawg, cat talk. Ruff, ruff. <laughs> I couldn't resist. As soon as I saw the song title "Sunrise," that clip <laughs> popped into my head, which meant that it had to go into the episode. Anyway, here's the Who's "Sunrise."
0: In case you haven't noticed, the radio format of the album is starting to mysteriously fall to the wayside. Here we get an abrupt left turn into what's essentially Pete Townsend demos. And to me, it's always felt out of place. Uh, Keith Moon was upset that Pete insisted on including this song on the album, which squeezed out his one songwriting contribution. Uh, and while Girl's Eyes maybe isn't a masterpiece, I do think it's more in the feel of the rest of the album than this. Girl's
4: eyes, butterflies, how she cries, can't get through to you. She knows all the charts, breaks her heart, thanks a lot of you.
0: time Pete was studying with jazz guitar methods of Mickey Baker and this is essentially a showcase of him developing his techniques at the guitar and he claimed that he wrote this song for his mother to prove that he could write real music and honestly to me this sounds more like a guitar workout than a cohesive song Mm. probably a hot take but we'll see (laughs) for me the most notable thing here is that we do get the early hint of Pinball Wizard And it's interesting to hear the songwriting process at work, but I think the decision to include it on in the album was kind of questionable.
1: Very interesting. Tell me I'm wrong. I love sunrise. I love sunrise. <laughs> it has this mystical feel to it that, like, I, I associate it with. Like, it's it sounds like a, a song with that title should sound like to me. Like, I get I get a similar feeling with the song "Dusk" by Genesis from a couple years later. Which captures the, the the similar idea of of the sun disappearing over the the horizon as as this one does with it appearing. I like having uh, the first two iterations of the you take away the breath I was keeping for sunrise. I like I like that they're in two different keys. Um, st- it starts in F, then it goes in in into G before heading back to F uh, for the last part. It just has a really really lovely atmosphere to me, even if it's not the most directly memorable of of the, of the sort of of pop ballads that the towns that Townsend could write like I get this one in my head all the time um, just because of the impression that it leaves um, perhaps above and beyond uh, the raw musical materials so I, I'm a big fan of this one Ben, back me up yeah
3: absolutely uh, I'm, I'm on team John with this one uh, although I really like Dan's take on it and I, I hadn't thought of it that way and, and it makes a lot of sense I picture this as something that John Lennon might've written in India and recorded for the white album. Uh, It's just, it's pure and lovely. And it's got that beautiful finger picking that the Beatles learned from Donovan in India. And that I associate with songs like uh, Julia and dear prudence. And this came before that, didn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. In terms of the style, if the who did this all the time, might have been worthwhile artistically but it wouldn't have been as interesting and i don't think they would have been the who the who are basically energy and humor when you when it comes down to it they don't always have to be those things but that's the key that i always want them to come back to is energy and humor but i'm happy with this as a one-off uh or maybe as a two-off a decade later Pete made another song in a similar style called Blue, Red, and Gray from the album The Who by Numbers. Oh, yeah. And it's equally fantastic. It's just him. I think he's playing a ukulele instead of picking a guitar. But uh, it's a beautiful song. So I'll grudgingly allow Pete these two amazing songs that just don't
4: sound like The Who. Some
5: people seem so obsessed with
4: the morning Get up early just to watch the sunrise some people like it more when there's fire in the sky. Worship the sun when it's high. Some people go for those sultry evenings, sipping cocktails in the blue, red, and gray. But I like every minute of the day.
1: Well, just really, the thing I want to jump in with really quick is part of the reason I love the Who Sell Out so much is because so much of it doesn't sound like the who mm-hmm. and I, I love what the who sounds like in its core sense but i love that they're they go off in all these other directions and they don't completely fall on their faces yeah that's a thing with a lot of bands that i'm i'm largely a sucker for so this one's going to grab me um and and so will all the other ex- exercise like that on this album rich what do you think
2: well, to go back to the jam, I think this song is actually a case where they managed to one-up Pete Townsend. So there's a song called English Rose on their album All Mod Cons that it reminds me a lot of Sunrise because it's Paul Weller doing like a tender solo acoustic song with a kind of jazzy finger-picking chord sequence. But I think it just plain has a better, more skillfully articulated melody. No matter where I run.
0: Oh yeah, this song. We'll
4: return to my English rose For no bonds Can ever tempt me from she.
2: Rich, that's a great comparison. Yeah, those waves crashing in the background certainly help, too. But anyway, you win this round, the jam. <laughs> yeah, I agree.
1: All right, we're going to move on to the final track
2: on the Who Sell Out. And this is called Rayel Okay, John, I'm pretty sure you know what's about to happen. Here it is. <laughs> I would have been offended if it didn't.
4: (laughs) It's
2: like our Genesis episode never ended. Yes. Is this the first
3: Genesis reference on Discord and Ron?
2: (laughs) The first (laughs) one ever. (laughs) Okay, here's the Who's Raelle.
4: Right real. My is gotten, my
0: so the original stereo mix in the mono mix has a really terrible edit right around the 32nd mark of the song where I forget quite what the story is. Somehow the tape wound up in the trash of the first half of the song and they had to just graft the rest of the song onto it. So you get this really nasty edit that they've actually fixed on the 1995 remix. So, again, another reason to get the remix. Yeah,
2: there's a there's a probably apocryphal story that when Pete Townsend found out about the damaged tape, uh, he threw a chair through the glass partition in the control room and then calmly told the engineer, don't worry, sometimes these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably didn't actually happen but funny you know little tale nonetheless and you know it was a pretty crude edit and uh it was
0: disappointing to the point where they actually did a re-recording of the song and they ultimately decided the re-recording just didn't sound right for the album so they just stuck with the what was but they could salvage of the original uh, performance the song itself was initially conceived as a 30-minute rock opera about a soldier from the fictional country of real am i saying that right Real. Yeah, who goes on to fight the invading Chinese army. The song was first shrunk down to 10 minutes and then down to five minutes in the hope to make it a single, but it was still too long to be a single anyway. <laughs> and I really can't imagine this lighting up the charts to, to begin with. So I don't know why they went to all that effort to make it more compact. This is where the sneak preview of Tommy really kicks in. Most notably, you get the instrumental backing that would be repurposed as sparks.
4: He's crazy if he thinks we're coming back again He's crazy if he thinks we're coming back again He's crazy if he thinks we're coming back again He's crazy Anyway
0: This foreshadowing sort of reminds me of the end of Back to the Future Part 2, where they basically just have a trailer for Part 3 at the end of it. Um, (laughs) Just imagine a train going by.
3: That's great. What a great comparison.
0: Um, And this might be controversial as well, but this track has, has never quite gelled together for me either uh
2: I do, think do, pe- do people love Rael or is, I don't is know. Like, I mean, I'm not like sure. A huge the opinion. contingent
0: of who fans. I mean, I think it's an interesting glimpse again into Pete Townsend's songwriting. But to me, it feels like an interesting preview of what he would go on to do. And I think him including something like this in the album is a bit premature. Like I don't think he had quite reached that point yet to have it be this grand closing statement for the album. I don't know. Do people like this song?
2: No, I had pretty much the same reaction as you—that we're getting like the next time on the who <laughs> g- credits reel. <laughs> uh, but it's like an early trailer that was compiled before the production wrap, so you're you're missing all of like the foley and ADR and editing and all of the things that will eventually make Tommy click. It's like the early cut of Cats with all the mistakes. <laughs> exactly The who will return it <laughs> yeah but tommy was the first Who album i heard so it was kind of a trip putting this one on and hearing like all the little building blocks before they were uh, as exquisitely produced as we get on tommy but uh yeah I, I haven't confirmed this but i've read that the end of the production for the who sellout was kind of a rush job because the band had to actually like go back on tour and earn money and stuff uh, which also accounts for the way the commercial breaks disappear as as the album goes on, um, and and I think that this is this song is where that's the most obvious. Like it, it it definitely feels much more like openly unfinished than anything else on the album. So I don't love this song, but
1: it still sounds to me light years better than, for instance, the uh the studio version of a quick one while he's away. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, and I think this matters because. Like Tommy couldn't happen without this track, like, and not just because of the guitar line. Um, Pete still had to work out the kinks on how something like this was going to, going to work. And you know, this is rough in spots, and yet again, I don't love this track, but various little fragments from it, and not just the, the Tommy guitar line, like, gets stuck in my head from time to time. And I, I like the overly dramatic uh telling of of mutiny and uh the way we we shift perspective from from the captain to the to the crewman saying he's crazy if he thinks we're coming back again I even though it's all disjointed and it doesn't uh come together it's it's still really interesting to me and also on the uh on the 95 uh version, uh, Rail would follow with this the, this Short track uh, Which they would call Rail 2 Which is this this solo Pete vocal performance That I always thought was a Would have been a really really effective capper If they had actually kept it on the proper album
4: That has been good While I have grown Bless the thoughts That made me sail And the God
1: I always like to imagine that the the album actually ended on that point instead of where it actually does. So
3: all the Rael stands out there, uh, you know where to direct your angry emails. Dan, <laughs> Dan at DiscordAndRhyme.com. Uh, actually, Don't you can direct them out. at me too. <laughs> Rael isn't without worth, uh, but it should have been left off the album to me. It, it doesn't fit the concept. And that's not the worst thing because I've never heard a concept album that kept the story going the whole way through. Uh, but Sunrise would have been a very nice note to end things on. And instead, they ended on this rambling, strange, melodic, not unenjoyable, but just inessential rock opera uh, to close the album. Townsend had written better rock operas before this. He'd write better rock operas after this. In the middle, this one's just kind of there.
1: And with that, we are done with the Who Sell Out. So Dan, what are your closing thoughts?
0: Uh, my closing thoughts really are just the Again, with The Who, it's easy to get kind of exhausted by their omnipresence in our culture, just in terms of classic rock radio, various iterations of CSI. Um, So... This one, to me, though, has always maintained a freshness that a lot of their catalog just doesn't have for me anymore. Um, Even though it's not perfect, it's it's a lot of fun. It's funny. Just tons and tons of great melodies. And one thing I will say in terms of if you do not own this album or if you only own the album on vinyl, by all means, get it on CD with the bonus tracks Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of great stuff that just didn't make the cut that's... Just relegated the bonus tracks and you should hear them. So this album
1: wilts a little bit at the end. Uh, I don't think many people will dispute that. And yet even the second half, you know, for me, has some really, really great material. And the first half it to me is essentially perfect. I I love the Who, and this, you know, isn't my absolute favorite Who album. Um, but it's very, very high for me. Like, even with uh, the way that it slightly falls apart, this is an album that I find myself in the mood for pretty often, which says something because I have a lot of albums that, that have to compete for my attention. Um, but this is one that I find myself coming back to over and over again. And yeah, if if you think that you're sick of The Who or if there's a particular idea of The Who that you've gotten stuck on, like this is a great palate cleanser. And a great way to, to remind you that, oh, yeah, the, the Who could be a really vital and uh, really creative and, and really interesting band that could go in a lot of different directions. So yeah, I love this album. Ben?
3: Yeah, I wish The Who had done more albums like this one uh, somehow, because I don't think they should have done anything different before or after. But I just wish there was more like this in the catalog. The album hits such a sweet spot of melody humor creative invention and virtuosic execution the band was this good after the who sell out but they were never this good this way again uh so dan you made an awesome choice for this episode i really enjoyed talking about
1: it so dan if somebody hears this album and they want to hear more material from the who where would you direct them
0: Well, early on, you guys spoke highly of the compilation Meaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy. Rules. Hell yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And, you know, it, it might be a bold move to recommend a compilation, but as far as this era of The Who, I mean, it is just too perfect of an album to not recommend it. I mean, it's everything, just about everything you need from that early period leading up to Tommy. It's just wall to wall, just great, great pop music.
4: I've looked on the tables. I try to find the key to fifty million fables. They call me the seeker. I've been searching low and high. I won't get to get what I'm after till the day I die.
0: To go further, I would say, and again, this is like the Stones, where do I need to tell you to buy Who's Next and all that and whatever. But Live at Leeds for sure—that's one that I got relatively late, and good God, like it is one of the most famous live albums for a reason. Especially the extend, the expanded version, the nineteen ninety-five version. Uh, just an incredible live band, and just because I like recommending movies. I would say The Kids Are All Right from 1978 is a really good documentary that has just tons of great live footage and good interviews. Uh, It's usually streaming, I think. I think I've seen it streaming recently. So check it out if you haven't seen it. Ben.
3: So is this section music recommendations? I I thought this was where we recommended a book that any fan of the band (laughs) should read after hearing this episode. Could be. What's that book, Ben? I was going to say Listening to the Who by Benjamin Marlin. That you'd think I'd be more clear on our format after 76 episodes. Oh, well. Uh, so on music, this is a cliche because everyone knows Tommy. And we've talked about Tommy, but I love Tommy. Uh, the Who made a ton of amazing music. Most of it is worth recommending. But Tommy has endured for a reason. Uh, the plot of the opera goes off the rails, but not as much as you might think. And it is just stuffed with catchy, melodic songs and with some of the best rock and roll guitar riffs you'll ever hear. Uh, In my book, I I contrast the riffs on Tommy with Keith Richards' immortal guitar riffs for the Rolling Stones. When I listen to a Keith riff, I always think, I can't believe no one thought of that one before he did. Whereas with Pete Townsend's riffs on Tommy, I think, I can't believe anyone ever thought of this. (laughs) And those are both compliments.
4: Delirium creeps up on me. All at once, a tall stranger I suddenly see. He's dressed in a silver, sparked, glittering gown, and his golden beard flows nearly down to the ground. Uh,
3: So go explore, Tommy. Not the way that his Wicked Uncle Ernie did. Uh, just listen to the music. You can't go
2: wrong with it. <laughs> Rich, what about you? So I generally highly prefer the Who's 60s music. And and Ben alluded to this earlier, but I'm really not a fan <laughs> of Who's Next. I think it's two great songs and a whole bunch in the middle that I'm not a big fan of. So. Thanks, Ben. You dragged that out of me. But the way I see their later, bigger, like kind of blustery arena sound from the 70s is that if the Who are going to go big, they should go completely all out. And that is why my favorite Who album is Quadrophenia. Hell yeah. Quadrophenia is a double album with an over-the-top concept about a young mod who has four split personalities that reflect the four members of the Who. And of course, Pete Townsend's motif is the epic, grandiose one that closes the album. Uh, So Quadrophenia is just one big Obvious emotional peak after another And for me it just keeps hitting musical Bullseye after bullseye (laughs) And just a needle bend. There are a couple of lengthy instrumental suites on the album that are the closest that the Who ever came to Prague. So the Who are Prague. <laughs> and uh, something I just thought of: if any, if any of our listeners that haven't seen the TV show "Freaks and Geeks," uh, there's a great episode of the show where the entire soundtrack consists of Who songs, and it's extraordinarily well done. Wow. Yeah, it's a good one.
1: So as for me, um, I am an enormous fan of the Who, uh, both studio and live various studio uh peaks have been hit here um i just want to talk about their their live sound a little bit so live at Leeds was mentioned earlier um there are an increasing number of not only legal but semi-legal uh recordings out there of of, of various broadcasts from the say the 68 to 70 era and you can get uh live footage on on uh bonus tracks from from various studio albums. One live album that I come back to over and over again through the years, and I have a lot of nostalgic attachment to, is a recording of their 1970 Isle of Wight performance. This was an album for me where in college it was very frequent if I wanted to study or if I I was driving home on a trip, I would put this on a tape uh, that I'd made it so i could actually listen to the car and just crank it and it's it's a it's an album where it sounds good on stereo speakers and just becomes this unbelievably immersive experience on headphones it's almost certainly my favorite who album i mean my mood changes from time to time Um, but if i could only take one who album with me to the proverbial desert island it would be uh, the recording of their their Isle of Wight Festival 1970 show.
2: Okay, John, we're all done with the who sell out. So it's time for you to tell us who's next.
1: (laughs) Hold on, let me find my sunglasses. Uh. (laughs) Up next, Rich will be hosting an episode on martinis and bikinis
2: by Sam Phillips. I'll be bringing my bikini and some martinis. <laughs> so this is one of the lesser known albums we've covered on the show and I'm excited to introduce people to it. Yeah, I listened to it recently. It's it's quite good. All right, roll credits.
1: Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy The Who Sellout and other albums by The Who at your local record store or directly from The Who at thewho.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit my music review archive at John Fair warning, I rate albums in hexadecimal. The Who Sell Out receives an E, which means that it is great. A lot of albums we cover on the show receive E's, I've noticed. That is true. Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike
2: DeFabio for production, our theme song. And original music. And one last time, make sure to check out Ben's book, Listening to the Who, Album by Album, Song by Song. It's available on Amazon, and we'll put a link in the show notes.
1: See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. All right,
3: guys, time to smash our microphones.